Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Again, we're looking forward to an exciting 25th anniversary, and I hope you'll all be uh, uh, praying, and, and we'll be, there'll be more details to come as we get ready for that. We're in a series looking at the life of Abraham and the faith that he teaches us, and a faith that's, that shows that he was far from perfect. Uh, and, and that, to me, actually provides a little bit of reassurance that, that I, I can live this life, too. It's, it's not that, that God is somehow expecting perfection all of this. As I was thinking about the, the, what I was looking at today, it brought back a memory of mine. I grew up in, in central Louisiana, a town called Alexandria, and uh, most weekends, most Saturdays of the year, um, my father took me either hunting or fishing, depending on the season. And um, I, I, lots of different places that I could, I could tell you about. But I remember one particular experience. I was probably nine or ten. And we went to a place called Ayat Lake. Just out of curiosity, anybody ever heard of Ayat Lake? Man. All right. Well, it's real. It's between Colfax and Dry Prong. So there you go. Uh, and it, it was a kind of a... a, a a lake, a fairly young lake at the time, so it, it uh, had a lot of stumps and stobs and stuff like that in it. It was the kind of thing that a nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy in a boat would get a little nervous. And we didn't have a bass boat. We just had a little metal boat. And because um, there would be little wasp, you know, red wasp nests on these little things around, so you'd be kind of scared. Dad, don't bump me into the thing because he was paddling and I was, I was at the front. And um, I remember as we were working our way through, we weren't catching many bass. But um, my dad th threw the line out, and there was a stob coming out of the water. It was probably about, about that high, and it came up, and then there was a branch that went off to the side. And he threw his lure, and, and some of you have seen this happen. It, it went over, instead of going under, it went over, and it wrapped and, 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 and started hanging down. Well, if you just had gone just over, he could just kind of jerk it and it would pop over. But because it wrapped, I mean, we were going to have to get it. Well, my lure was out in the water, so he, uh, he decided he would wait until I got mine in. So we're, we're, he's, we're waiting a moment, okay? And that lure is just kind of dangling there over the thing. By the time I get mine in and we're turning to take the boat and move it over there, lo and behold, a bass jumps out of the water, grabs the bait, and hooks himself. And starts flopping around there on, on the thing. His tail was just about on the water. I mean, this, he didn't jump just this high. I mean, he jumped like that high out of the water. I haven't seen like anything like that before or since. It was the most amazing experience. I mean, I still remember it. I don't, uh, as many times as I went fishing with him, there's a lot of things I don't remember. But uh, what I realize is if, if my lure hadn't been out in the water, he would have taken us straight over there, disturbed the water, and we would have probably never seen that happen. But because we had to wait a little bit, we had a chance to see something really amazing. Now, sometimes waiting, believe it or not, is actually a good thing. But if you're like me, most of us, we're not very good at waiting. The Timex folks did a study of how long folks would wait for certain things. And they discovered that on average, on average, we'll wait 13 seconds before honking at a car in front of us that stopped at a green light. Now, how many of you don't wait the 13 seconds? 
Yeah, I know you. I've been, I've been in front of you. Uh, we'll wait 20, these, these are averages, 26 seconds before we shush people who are talking in a movie theater, 13 minutes for a table at a restaurant, and 20 minutes for the last person to show up for Thanksgiving dinner before we dig in. So if, you, if, if you're later than 20 minutes, on, odds are they're not going to wait for you on Thanksgiving. And, and what's true in general is typically just as true when it comes to our faith and waiting on God. And, and nowhere is that more evident than in the life of Abraham. So I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, or the YouVersion Bible app, or you can pull out the notes that are in your bulletin that, that have that in there. And, and just a little background, chapter 16 comes right after what we looked at last week of God initiating his covenant with Abram. And, and then we're going to jump to chapter 21 which comes many years later after God has changed Abram's name to Abraham, which we saw last week in chapter 17. So when I, I want to talk for about Abram sometimes, and I'm talking then later about Abraham. I don't want you to get confused uh, about that. And if you missed it, it's online. You can go back and see that online from last week. So as chapter 16 begins, the writer, uh, who the church historically is understood to be Moses, the writer of this, and he's writing now several hundred years after this has happened, as these stories have come to him orally, reminds us of something very important, considering that God had promised Abram that he would have many descendants. In verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Several times now, if you've been with us, you know that the Bible tells us that Sarai couldn't have children. And since we now know she and Abram have been promised all these descendants, it creates a tension. As we wonder, when is this going to happen? God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to fulfill your promise and covenant? We also learn that Sarai has an Egyptian servant or maid. Verse 2, Sarai says to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, in Old Testament times, it was a common belief that infertility was, was a direct act of God, though most folks today wouldn't say that. But in this case, it probably is true. Because God has a big and miraculous plan to fulfill his covenant with Abram. And having no children, we've talked about this before, but having no children was a big problem because children did everything from helping to raise food to essentially caring for their parents in their old age. And for women in particular, it was a sign of success as a wife to, to have children. So in ancient times, polygamy was fairly common as a way of ensuring children for the family. And, and yet wealthier wives preferred that to do what we would today call some form of surrogate motherhood, where they would give a servant to their husband um, to become a second wife, but as a gift from her versus something that the husband initiated. And let me just quickly say, you go through Scripture, and nowhere do you find that this is, practice is affirmed. And in fact, most of the places you see, the results are never, there's usually problems with the results. The wife then would typically claim any child born into such a setting as her own. And, and this is exactly what Sarai was planning, offering Abram her servant, Hagar. However, the way the story is told, 
really it, it indicates that this is not God's plan. This is not the way he wanted this to happen. And, and nowhere, as we read through these passages, nowhere have we read that, that God suggested this, that Sarai and, Sarai and Abraham, Abram, who had waited on God for years to, to do this. But clearly there's some anxiety here, and, and like a lot of us, they decide to take matters into their own hands. When we compare this, and, and I didn't catch this, but several commentators noted this, when we compare this passage to Genesis chapter 3, and remember, that's the story of Eve and then Adam being tempted by the forbidden fruit. What is noticed is in the original Hebrew, the words in chapter 3 of Genesis and the words in chapter 16 are virtually identical in terms of the actions. And, and Hebrew listeners, who these stories would have been oral until the time of Moses, were very tuned to listening to that and would have caught that very easily. Because in both cases, the woman takes something, gives that something to her husband, whom accepts it, and the result in both cases was a fall from God's good and perfect plan. So there, there's a real indication at a, at, a, at a fundamental scriptural level that God's not saying this is okay, that this is really a lot like the fall. This is not God's plan. But it, the story goes on. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she, Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress. She's, she's proud in conceiving something her mistress didn't. And so she feels some degree of superiority over her. And that doesn't sit well with Sarai. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Remember, when, when God confronted Eve and Adam on what they had done, the very first thing they each did was blame someone else. And what does Sarai do here? She blames her decision on Abram. Look what you did. And of course, he went along. So let's not, let's not let him off the hook here. He's not innocent. But Sarai practically threatens Abram with a curse if he doesn't do something about Hagar. And so he essentially gives in to her. Verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The word harshly there is, the, again, the same word used in Exodus to describe the suffering the Israelites endured in Egypt. So it's severe. And Hagar runs away carrying Abram's child. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. This location on the way to Shur tells us that Hagar was probably headed back to Egypt. In verse 14, we learn later that this place is going to be called Beer Lahai Roy. But we've got a, a, a map here just to kind of give you a little bit of an indication uh, of this is the Middle East, here's the Mediterranean, this is Egypt and the, and the Nile, and uh, here's the Dead Sea. And they're up in this area. And here is Beer Lahai Roy right here. I, you may not be able to read it, but I'm pointing it out. And it's, so it's kind of a journey like this. 
going like this. So she's headed in that direction when an angel finds her. And it's not just any angel. The Bible says the angel of the Lord. And that phrase is used 58 times in the Old Testament. And each time, this particular angel's appearance is somewhat different from simply the appearance of an angel. It's, it's not clear to scholars exactly what this means, but it's used to tell us that somehow God himself is appearing in this angel, and also it's a more of a human form. Because, in fact, typically when the angel of the Lord appears to someone, that person first sees a human being. They don't even realize it is the angel of the Lord. Only later do they, do they figure it out. And that seems to be the case here because the scripture doesn't indicate there's any surprise or, or fear on the part of Hagar, which it was typical as you go through scripture when someone is encountered by an angel and they realize it. So verse 8, it says, he says to Hagar, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. Now, the angel calls Hagar servant of Sarai which probably surprised her. How did he know who she was? How did he, he know that? But she's honest about it and says she's running away. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And, and, and that's probably not at all what Hagar wants to hear because the, the angel is telling her she is to go back. She is to go back to her mistress. She is to submit to her. And, and to, that can't be good news. But that's not the whole news. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. She didn't know that. And you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. At this point, it has to be beginning to dawn on Hagar, this isn't a man, that this is in fact an angel, an angel. and she's hearing prophecies now about her son, and, and, and she would have certainly heard the prophecies that had been already spoken over Abram and Sarai, and, and they sound very, very similar as the one that Abram received in his covenant with the Lord, she will have a son. But she is to name him Ishmael, which means God hears or God has heard. Anytime you see the letters E-L coming out of the Hebrew language, L, L stands for God, Ishmael. Um, so it, it, God hears. So though Hagar will have to go back if she's going to be obedient and what we see in this is that actually Hagar is the, more, is, the, is the more faithful person than Abram and Sarah and, Sarah and all this. But, but she has to go back. God has promised that he has heard her predicament and shown that even in the midst of it, her life has purpose. The, the angel's description of Ishmael's future seems to indicate he's going to be this kind of free-roaming, Bedouin-style uh, life and, and a life often in conflict with others. So even though Sarai and, and Abram failed to wait on God's timing, they had demonstrated faith before, but, but they weren't perfect at it. God doesn't punish Hagar or her son for this, and in fact gives him a future that includes some of the, the same promises that the child of the covenant is going to have. 
And she graciously receives all God has offered her and, and her son. So verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kedesh and Barad. We tell, they tell us that to say, hey, this was a real place. If you want to go find it, you can still go find it. And, and in the Bible, when it says God sees, it's more than just kind of something visual. It means he cares. He's concerned about this person. Hagar calls him God. Uh, th that's the, the title that, that she uses. But Moses, who, remember, is writing this several hundred years later, who has had an encounter with this same God in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 3, gives us a different name, calls him the Lord. This was God's name. Had not yet been revealed to Abraham or Sarah or anyone else. But Moses, looking back on this, knows who this is, and he tells us that this God who is helping Hagar is the same God who will bring freedom to the Israelite people. And the name that Hagar gives the, the well at this spot, Beer Lahai Roy, means well of the living one who cares for me. So she realizes God has done this for her. And so we go back, verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son, and, and Abram called the, the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And that's a little bit unusual, because the guys were the ones supposed to name their sons. But they were obedient to what God said. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. In Hagar's return and birth of her son, Ishmael, you also notice there is no mention in those two verses of Sarai or her claim on the child, which was really kind of the original point of, of why she offered Hagar uh, uh, to, to Abram in the first place. Yet Abram does get an heir, a son, and, and he is left wondering, in spite of what he has heard God say, say is this child, is Ishmael the one promised to me for the future. But as we saw in chapter 17 last week and afterwards, God promises Abraham that the child of the promise, the child of the covenant, will come from him and from Sarah. So we know Ishmael will not be that child, but it will be 14 years before that son is born. So we're going to jump forward now to chapter 21 and continue this story that Hagar is a part of. So, 21.1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. The miracle child has been born. And if you do the math, you'll discover that Abraham at this point is about 100 and Sarah is about 90. I mean, that's miraculous in and of itself. And it's a wonderful time for Sarah, for now she has her son. But her joy doesn't last. Verse 8, the child grew, talking about Isaac, and was weaned. 
And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the, the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Now, in biblical times, children were typically, I'm going to use these kind of typically, weaned around the age of three. That's a little longer than most of you moms waited to wean yours. Most. But because of the high infant mortality rate, uh, they, they were, the first two or three years were very much up in the air. Very kind of scary time for a family. Will this child survive? And by the time of weaning, usually they had gotten over some of the more scarier life experiences of that time. And so there was, it was not unusual for there to be a celebration. And yet something happens in the celebration, and, and Sarah sees Ishmael, who is now a teen, okay, laughing, or some translations say mocking her three-year-old son. And, and she doesn't like it. And she demands that Abraham throw them out. Now, Clearly, these intervening years have not particularly improved Sarah's relationship with Hagar or the child that was supposed to be born for her, Ishmael. Yet Abraham clearly loves and cares for his son. And, and, and though he doesn't like Sarah's demand, God's going to tell him to obey Sarah because Isaac is the child of the promise, child of the covenant. Verse 11, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God gives Abraham some peace about sending Ishmael and Hagar away, because God promises that there will be a nation coming out of this man also. But Abraham suffers because this is his son, his firstborn. He suffers because he and Sarah had taken matters into their own hands and had not waited upon the Lord. And therefore, this whole circumstance has risen up. And through God, though God is still bringing some good out of it, it won't be God's highest good for Abraham. Things really might have been different had he chose to wait upon the Lord. If, if he had exerted his right as the father of the house, as the man of the household, the husband, to not take the woman that Sarah offered to her. Verse 14, so Abram, Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, this time, as they wander, the time before when she had left, she had been in this area, and they'd gone this way. This time, she heads toward Beersheba here, into this area of wilderness. She's heading more southeast rather than southwest. She's going in a different area, but this is a uh, satellite map, and so you can tell this is a pretty rough environment. Uh, as all of this area is. It's not a good place. It's not a safe place. And things don't go well. Uh, it appears she's headed toward northern Arabia, which Bible tells us in chapter 25 will later be a land inhabited by Ishmaelites. 
But when you look at verse 15, it says, When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. But the God who cares is always watching over us. And apparently, Ishmael is also crying. Remember, Ishmael actually created this problem by laughing at Isaac. And now his, his cries are heard by God, which is interestingly a play on Ishmael's name, God hears. Because it tells us in verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now, from the first encounter, Hagar knew Ishmael would have many descendants. And, and she knew that God had promised Abraham that he would make a great nation of, of his children. Now she's hearing it that the same thing is going to be true of Ishmael, which probably gives her some comfort. Now she learns her son's future is even more than she knew. God will make him into a great nation. Thanks to Abram and Sarai not waiting on the Lord. And not only does God make promises, but he also provides for them, showing her a well of water to take care of them. Verse 20, and God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So again, looking at the map, just again to get a handle on it, they are up in this area, this is the wilderness of Paran. So they move down into this area to live. He grows up here, becomes a, a hunter, and, and um, uh, lives his life out in this area. We didn't read it this morning, but chapter 25 tells us that decades later, when Abraham died at the age of 175, Ishmael will return to assist Isaac in burying their father. A few verses later in that chapter, the Bible tells us that Ishmael had 12 sons. And if you know your, your Bible history, Abraham's grandson Jacob also had 12 sons, the 12 sons of the tribes of, of Israel. We also learn that Abraham's other grandson Esau married Ishmael's daughter Mahalath. Uh, it, it also tells us that Ishmael's sons settled from Havilah to Shur. Now, this is a much larger map. The map I had before was just this little area right here, all right? This is modern-day Israel, uh, Mediterranean, uh, the, Red, uh, the um, Red Sea. And this is modern-day Saudi Arabia. He, over here is uh, uh, Shur, and over here is Havilah. So the Scripture tells us that, that while he started out in this area of Paran, this is the area where Ishmael started out, his descendants ended up settling across this area, here in what we would today call northern Saudi Arabia. 
The Bible says that Ishmael died at the age of 137. And that's all the Bible really tells us about him. However, the Islamic faith claims that Ishmael is the father of many of the Arab peoples. And, and you can see that if you look at the area where he lived. And an important prophet and patriarch of Islam, which was founded by Muhammad. Supposedly, we can't prove it, supposedly a descendant of Ishmael through his oldest son sometime after 610 A.D., or more than 2,500 years later. It's interesting, in Islamic lore, Abraham, we're going to see in a couple weeks, there's a, a time when God calls Abraham to a sacrifice related to his son Isaac. But in, in Islamic lore, Abraham will be called to sacrifice not Isaac, but they believe Ishmael. And as they go to do that, their understanding of God, Allah, intercedes and reveals it's better to share with the poor than offer his son as a sacrifice. So Islam believes Abraham later journeyed with, with uh, Ishmael to what is today Mecca. In other words, at some point, uh, and the Bible nowhere records this, some point migrated down to this area. Here's where modern-day Mecca is, uh, modern Saudi Arabia, to build the initial Kaaba sign, uh, shrine, the holiest site in all of Islam, where today, even, pilgrims annually during the feast of the Ramadan make sacrifices to give to the poor. And this is that site. And this is the location. This is not the original shrine, uh, but this is supposedly the site that Islam claims that Ishmael, with the help of Abraham built a shrine, and they have built their religion around that. It makes you wonder what our world might have been like if Abram and Sarai had resisted the urge to take matters in their own hands and just waited upon the Lord. I mean, think about it. The theme of waiting on the Lord is a common one throughout Scripture, uh, with troubles and suffering coming to those who fail to do so, and blessings to those who do. Just a couple of scriptures in the Psalms. Psalms 27, wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. That's the problem. We often see other people doing stuff and other things happening. We say, i, I got to get in on this. I, I, if, if I don't, I'm going to be left behind instead of waiting upon him. For Abraham and Sarah and us, there's certainly consequences for their decision not to wait on the Lord. They suffered anguish, even probably marital problems, given uh, Sarah's uh, thoughts about Hagar after, after they had had the child. The anguish for Sarah because of the way she felt treated by Hagar and the mocking of, of Ishmael toward her son. For Abraham, because he, he, he lost his beloved first son, and Hagar and all the struggles that she went through. And if it is true that Ishmael was a patriarch of Islam, then, then all the strife through the centuries, could be laid at the feet of failing to wait upon the Lord. I mean, we think this is something that happened 4,000 years ago that has no impact. And we need to understand that this has profoundly impacted our world today. 
It may have seemed to Abraham and Sarah that they were just trying to help God out, you know? Okay, God, it's been years since you made the promise. Nothing's happened. Maybe we need to help you out here. But I want to tell you, if God needs, listen, if God needs your help, my help, Abraham's help, anyone's help to actually accomplish his will, he's not a very powerful God. If we're not staying connected to God, it's easy for us to, to get in our heads that we, we want to try to help, we want to try to move ahead, we fail to wait on him, and we go down a path that, as it was for Abraham and Sarah, entails more suffering, more trouble than God ever intended. It doesn't mean that he can't redeem those choices, because he did. But there will always be consequences of failures to trust and wait. And we continue to see the result of Abraham and Sarah's failure to wait on God today. Now, I'm not kidding anybody. It is not easy to wait when God is working. I, I have felt that many times in my life, and I guarantee you I have jumped the gun, as probably all of us have. But I have also found that when I wait, sometimes some of the most amazing things happen. Like I get to see a bass jump up out of the water and hook himself, you know? When we wait on the Lord, we have the opportunity to see God work, to see that his ways are bigger than our ways, more, more magnificent than we can imagine. Now, I'm not saying we just always wait because we wait. I say we wait when we don't have a clear sense that God is leading us forward. It's why the Apostle Paul tells us that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We need God's help to even wait upon Him. And yet, with Him, all things are possible. And in fact, God, God often uses those waiting times to grow our faith and to help others. So right here, right now, is God calling you to wait on Him in some area of your life? And it's been hard. And you want to move forward. You want to be, you want to be obedient. But you want to move. You want something to happen. It's hard, maybe. Maybe you're caught between a rock and a hard place. And you keep thinking, surely... Is he calling you to wait? Or is he giving you a sign to move? I mean, he wants to lead our lives even more than we want him to lead our lives. But you can't hear him if you're not paying attention to him. If your lives are so busy, if we're going about our ways and we never spend time in God's word, if we're never in worshiping him together, if we're never listening to him, we may very well miss exactly what he wants to say. And it could make all the difference in the world. Right here, right now. Maybe for some of you it's committing today to trusting him and waiting on him to move. I don't know what that looks like in your life. It's different for every one of us. Every situation. There's no one size fits all. But I am convicted that God has a plan for every one of our lives. 
And that plan is a good and perfect plan. Doesn't mean it'll be an easy plan. Doesn't mean everything will come out the way we want. In fact, it very well may not come out at all the way we want. And that's sometimes the hard part. And why we want to jump into our own plan. Because we think we're smarter than God. Don't think that. God is the God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who has seen and knows everything. And he wants you and me to trust him. Today. Today, with just the next step, don't go any further. Don't go any further than you have light. But take whatever step he gives you and wait until there is a step. If you have questions or thoughts about that, our prayer team is going to be down here in just a minute. Communion is a great time to go and talk to God and to lay it before him and invite you to do that as well. If you're visiting with us today, myself and some friends will be out these doors near entrance one, and we'd love to say hello to you. If you brought someone with you, bring them over and, and let us welcome this morning. But let's close this morning with this prayer. God, we thank you that you love us, and, and you have a plan for every one of our lives. And, and yet, we're, we're all like Abraham and Sarah in that, that sometimes we, we, we clearly do well in following your will and sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and sometimes we think we know what's best and sometimes we're just tired of waiting and sometimes we think you don't want to understand our situation and sometimes we just, we jump the gun. And it's not to say, God, that you can't work good from all things. You can, you, the scripture says you, can, you bring good out of all circumstances for those who love you. But would it have been your best good would it have been the best circumstances for our life and those around us? And Father, I for one, I want your best for my life and for the lives of every person here today. So help us, Father, to know when to wait on you, to trust you, to not rush. And yet if we do, know that even that you can redeem. Thank you, Father. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. See you all next time. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.